Our reading this evening is from page 1187 in the Church Bible. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, page 1187. Beginning at verse 1. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that in your daily life you may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. This is the word of the Lord. Let me uh, pray for us as we start off together this evening. Father God, we thank you again and again each and every week for your wonderful word to us. We think at this time, particularly as we remember the Reformation, that we can have your word to us in our own language. And we celebrate that this evening as we read it, as we listen to you speaking to us from it. Help us to engage with what you have to say to us now. Amen. It's 1939 and the world is at war. The United Kingdom has declared war on Nazi Germany and six years of fierce global conflict are about to unfold. In that time, an estimated 60 million people would lose their lives. Now put yourself in the shoes of the British government in 1939. What do you tell the people of Britain? As the news of loved ones who have been killed in action comes in, what is it that they need to hear? As the Nazi forces sweep through Europe and threaten invasion, what is it that the people need to hear? As tons and tons of bombs are dropped on London night after night during the Blitz, what do the people need to hear? In the midst of panic, hunger, loss, what did the people need to hear? Well, keep calm and carry on. We've all seen the poster. It's a slogan that has become familiar to many. Originally launched in 1939, this poster has since become an icon of what it means to be British. And exactly what the population of the UK needed to hear, wasn't it? It could have been so easy for the people to just give in and give up. To give in to all that they were facing. 
I've fairly recently seen uh, the new uh, Dunkirk film. I don't know if you've seen it, and I would recommend it. It's quite hard-hitting. But uh, whilst we quite often look back to that point in the war as a great victory, in many ways, it was actually an absolute disaster. And the film captures that really well, the horror of that situation. The British army had been kicked out of Europe, and if it hadn't been for the arrogance of Germany's military leaders and their overconfidence in their air force, and if it hadn't been for the incredible courage of all those civilians who brought soldiers off of the shores of Dunkirk in their small boats, then many uh, British soldiers' lives would be lost, and there may well be no British army left at all. An embarrassing defeat, a close shave of a retreat, and following on from that, Bombings on London would commence as 1940 witnessed the horrors of the London Blitz. In all of that, the people needed to be encouraged to keep calm and to carry on, despite all that was going on around them. But how about for the Christian today? What message do we need to hear this evening? For those who are trusting in Jesus and living for God, what's the poster that we need to have in our mind's eye? At a time when we are significantly in the minority as Bible-believing Christians, at a time when we are surrounded by those who would label us as being arrogant, closed-minded, out-of-date, politically incorrect, at a time when all those around us seem to be happy, and content as they live by standards and morals that don't match up to the way that we're called to live as Christians. At a time when the pull to sin, particularly in regards to sexual temptation, has rarely been stronger, and the means to follow through on it has never been easier. It's no London blitz, but at times our Christian lives can feel like we're under serious attack, under immense pressure to give in and give up. At this time, what is it that you and I need to hear? Well, here in 1 Thessalonians, as we carry on uh, in this epistle, in our evening service series, we have the call to live to please God more and more. Live to please God more and more. In the opening words of chapter 4 that we're looking at tonight, we see that Paul makes it clear that the Thessalonians had already received instructions on how to live to please God. And many here this evening at St. Mary's will have received those same instructions. Whether you've grown up through the children and youth groups or you've been in church for many years. Um, sorry, I've just lost my place. <laughs> um, oh, it's completely gone. Look at there. There we go. You've been taught and shown, actually, how you can live for God. Because you have received those instructions, just as the Thessalonians had. Paul now calls the Thessalonians, calls the Thessalonian church and the church of St. Mary's to continue to please God and to do so more and more. Often, uh, we want something new, don't we? A new technique, a new pattern... Or perhaps a new regime, a new book to read. But actually here, Paul says, you know how you can live to please God. Just keep doing it and do it more and more. Now, it's easy for me 
to stand here tonight, if I don't lose my place, and to say, live to please God. And off we all go. That's the end of the service. But if it were that simple and straightforward, then I guess we as a staff team here would be out of a job. We are to live to please God more and more, but what does that actually practically look like? Well, we see here in this passage two things that capture what it means to live in a way that pleases God. And that is to live a life of holiness, and secondly, to live a life of love. Now, those are the two broad areas that we'll be looking at together. But as we go through these verses, we're also given wonderfully specific details in how we are to live in regards to relationships, sex, friendships, work, community, and even finances. And so there is no excuse to just pass over this as general sentiments to try and incorporate into our broad sense of thinking. This is practical, and it's grounded in everyday living, the nitty-gritty. So we've recognised what this passage is all about, how we can live to please God more and more. We've seen its nature, how it's practical and rooted in the everyday. But before we get stuck into these two points, we also need to be clear about where all this is coming from. We get loads of advice, don't we? From TV shows, self-help books, friends, or perhaps most commonly our mums and dads. But we need to see what is being offered to us tonight in 1 Thessalonians is more than just good advice. What Paul says here is on the authority of the Lord Jesus. This passage is full of divine authority. Have a look in verse 2. Paul asks and urges the church to live pleasing life to God in the Lord Jesus. Verse 3, the instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Verse 4, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, made holy. God's will. Verse 7, God calls us to a holy life. It is God who calls us. So there is no doubt where this is coming from. The call to live out our lives in a way that pleases God comes directly from God. Ignore what we're looking at this evening, and you'll be ignoring the Lord Jesus. So, how can we please God more and more? Well, first, we see in verse 3 to 8, it is by living lives of holiness. Ask the average Joe on the street what holiness means, and they'll probably conjure up Images of halos, doves, and saints sitting on clouds. But nothing that really takes any bearing on their lives. We know, though, from Scripture, that God's holiness means that he is set apart from the rest of creation. Perfect and separate from sin. And here, in this letter, we see that we are called to live lives of holiness which is to see ourselves as people who are consecrated for God, dedicated to him. At the moment, uh, Sarah, my fiancé, and I are saving for our wedding next year, Uh, and there have already been a few occasions where I've suggested dipping into the money pot to splash out on special days out and other things like that. But Sarah, who's uh, much better with money than I am, is always very firm that that money is set aside for the wedding. It has a special purpose. It's not for dinner dates and Costa coffees. 
But back here in our passage, we see that we as Christians are set aside for God. We have a special purpose. In verse 3, Paul reminds the Thessalonians that it is God's will that they should be sanctified, to be made more and more holy, more and more like Jesus. And as such, the Thessalonians and all Christian believers here today have the responsibility to bring their lives into alignment with God's will, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And just like that wedding money, we as Christians are set aside, which means we are to be distinct, different from the world around us that is not dedicated to living God's way. And the focus here in this passage is being dedicated to God in regards to sex. Have a look at verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Sexual immorality simply means any kind of sexual relations outside of heterosexual marriage. Any form of adultery, which includes our minds and our eyes as well as our bodies. You don't need me to tell you this evening that we live in a sex-soaked society. It's all around us, from films to fashion and pretty much everything in between. Back in June, I was preaching on the topic of lust in our Battles Christians Face series, and we recognised then the staggering challenges that we face as Christians to be sexually pure in a time that is so sexually immoral. We also saw that those uh, almost unbelievable stats that revealed just how hard we find it as Christians to be distinct in this regard. If we're being honest with ourselves, I'm sure there'll be many here this evening who would say that they don't feel particularly dedicated to God in this regard. We don't feel all that sanctified, and I would count myself amongst those. So how can we then be sexually pure, distinct, and dedicated for God in this area. Three things that we can unpack from verses 3 to 8 that God willing will help us to live more and more uh, in a way that pleases God. Firstly then, we are to remember that God commands. When it comes to sexual sin, we can really easily fall into the danger of thinking that it doesn't actually really matter, that no one saw, that no one was hurt, It was a momentary weakness. But we're told here in no uncertain terms that God commands us, verse 3, to avoid sexual immorality. Verse 4, that we should learn to control our own bodies, to be self-controlled. And verse 7, that we should not be impure, but to be holy, godlike in this area. So there's no hedging on this, no blurring of the lines, God Almighty, creator of the universe, powerful judge, loving heavenly father, commands us to be sexually pure and to avoid any kind of immorality. It's when we see the clarity of the command and the character of the one who gives it that we will then begin to take sexual sin a little bit more seriously. Secondly, God judges. The gravity of sexual sin and the seriousness of God's commands are highlighted to us in the second half of verse 6, where we read that the Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. Sexual sin, then, is not a moment of weakness that can be ignored. 
It is rejecting God's command and therefore rejecting God. And to reject God is to reject life eternally. If we go on in sin, disregarding the warnings that we've been given, rejecting God's commands, then we show ourselves to be unrepentant. We are not living to please God more and more as Christians who are being sanctified. We are living to please ourselves and those who have rejected God. And the consequences of that could not be more serious. Working with the youth here, I've come to discover that there are quite a few pyromaniacs amongst the lads. I won't mention uh, any names, but those guys will take every and any opportunity to simply burn things, whether it's a napkin in the flame of the candle on their table or at campfires to see if they can turn their marshmallows into mini fireballs. And as any responsible youth leader would do, I warn them of the dangers of playing with fire, the dangers to the table, to the church, to each other, and to themselves. You try to get these pyromaniacs to see that actually what they're doing isn't harmless fun, but actually really quite dangerous. And for us, it's only when we recognise just how dangerous sexual sin is we will then begin to take it more seriously. And finally, it's so important to hold those first two points in conjunction with this. We need to recognise that God empowers. Right at the end of verse 8, after we've had these two really quite heavy points on God's rule and judgment, we see that it is God who gives the Holy Spirit. The promise of the Old Testament was that God would enter into a new covenant, a new promise with his people, and that as a part of this new alliance, he would put his spirit into their hearts so they could walk in his statutes, walk in his ways. That promise was fulfilled with the sending of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who fills Christian believers is the one who enables those who are trusting in God to live for God, to be sanctified, to be distinct, and to be more and more Christ-like. We see in those final words that we have a God who gives. He gives new life and he gives the spirit by which we may take on that new life and really live it. Which means that wonderfully, it's not all on us. This isn't some lone solo mission where it's you versus every temptation and sin that's out there. No, with the Holy Spirit working in us, we are empowered to live lives that please God. And as we walk with the Spirit, our Christian lives, in our Christian lives, we can do this more and more. And that actually should be a massive encouragement to us. And we're not alone. God is with us, in us, empowering us. But it's also a massive challenge this evening. Because if you are here as a Christian believer, then you are empowered by God to live for God. And that uh, and as, uh, as that is the fact, then we are called to live a life that reflects that. So if you want to please God, we need to live a life of holiness. But secondly, and more briefly, we also see here that pleasing God, uh, pleasing God involves living a life of love. Have a look at verse 9. And again, we see here that the Thessalonians had already received clear teaching on the subject of brotherly love. 
And like with the topic of holiness, we see that this prior teaching had come from God. Again, with that divine authority, that seal. If we were to go back to our average Joe on the street and again ask him what he thought on love, then I'm sure we'd get a very different and very varied answer. For many, they, were, they would go to that kind of classic Valentine's Day scene. It might be sexual love, eros, or perhaps a paternal love between a parent and a child. What Paul is referring to here, though, is brotherly love, what is known in the Greek as Philadelphia. And whilst I'm sure we all love a good cream cheese bagel, that's not what Paul has in mind here. What he does have in mind is a love that goes beyond one's own family, but a love that is so dedicated that those it reaches are treated in a way they belong to the family. Traditionally, in the Greek, this kind of love would have only been used to describe actual blood relatives, physical brothers and sisters. But in light of the gospel, in light of the fact that we as Christians have been made one body and are now united in Christ, in light of that, Paul refers to the Thessalonian Christians as brothers and sisters. And it's not a one-off moment of extreme affection. He calls them brothers and sisters 19 times in this one letter alone. This love is the love that we are to have for one another in the family of the church. And this love that we see here in the family of the church is to be practical and personal. Now we all know that family uh, life isn't always necessarily harmonious and peaceful, and these verses very much take that into account. In verse 11, for those of us who are inclined to be perhaps overly concerned about others to the point of being a busybody, to the point of neglecting our own responsibilities, to the point of even being judgmental of others, to those with such tendencies, Paul says, lead a quiet life and mind your own business. But we're also called not to be idle. But, verse 11, to work with our hands. Economically, this means not taking advantage of others in the community of Christians, but to be proactive and as far as we are able to be independent in this regard. But I think the danger for us here in Basingstoke isn't so much of economic idleness, but more of social laziness. Are we living in a community where we can call each other brothers and sisters and not simply do so because we've forgotten the other person's name? Paul's challenge for the believer is to love one another in the church more and more. And being brutally honest, we're not going to be able to do that if we don't actually know one another. It's so easy to become inward-looking in our society to have your close little unit. But that's not what we're called to as Christians. As those who are empowered by the Spirit, we are to look to love one another practically and personally. Not just on Sundays, not just over a tea or a coffee, but through real, genuine relationships. Through listening, through caring, through sacrifice, through hospitality, through generosity. It won't always be easy. People rarely are. But the more we look to love in this way, the more we will please God with our lives. And the more this church 
will reflect the age to come. Let us be a people known for our holy living and also for our love for one another. That is what we're called to. That is our heavenly destination. Well, back to 1939. And in Germany, a man called Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor and theologian, decides to take a stand against the Nazi regime. Despite the mounting cost, despite being in the overwhelming minority, Bonhoeffer spoke out against the Fuhrer's influence on his country. Frustrated by the unwillingness of church leaders to oppose Hitler's anti-Semitism, Bonhoeffer created the Confessing Church, and despite eventually being forbidden to teach publicly and being forced to go underground, Bonhoeffer still taught seminary students for several more years. However, even those students eventually gave in to the pressures of standing up to the Nazi regime. But Bonhoeffer continued. He continued to speak out and actively work to practically share God's love in a time where so many people had turned to a darker way of living. Ultimately, he was arrested for his involvement in helping Jews flee the country. Still, though, he continued to teach with the help of some guards who smuggled out his writing. Eventually, he was transferred to a concentration camp where he was sentenced to death and hanged in April 1945, just one month before Germany surrendered. More than 70 years after his death, his determination to stand despite the great opposition he faced serves as a reminder and an encouragement to live for God, no matter how great the cost. As he was led out to be executed, he was recorded as saying this, This is the end, but for me, just the beginning of life. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a man who lived to please God, and he died to please God as well. And as we close this evening, let me encourage you to keep going, even when it's tough, even when it's hard, even when you feel like you're the only one. Keep looking to please God more and more in how you live your lives. Praise God that so many of us here can look back and see the years of Bible teaching that we have received. Don't forget it. Instead, let's continually be reminding one another of all those things. So we can look to live holy and loving lives more and more. I think a challenging question worth asking on the back of what we've heard is, does the pattern of your life match with the purpose of your life? Ask yourself, if I was on trial, would a jury be able to accurately work out what my purpose in life was? If all the things I did, everything that I spoke, how I spent my time, how I treated others, what I did by myself, if all that was studied and evaluated, would the conclusion be that my life's purpose was to please God more and more? Brothers and sisters, we live by grace. But that, as Christians, is our goal in life, that by receiving God's great love, for us now we can live lives that please God more and more with the help of the Holy Spirit. By God's grace, let's 
look to do that more ahead in the week. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a holy God, that you are a truly loving God. And we thank you that if we have put our trust in you and received your wonderful grace, then we too can be people who are holy and are loving towards one another. Help us to follow in your footsteps, even when it's costly, even when it's lonely, even when it's hard. Help us to trust you and with the help of your spirit in us to live lives that please you more and more. Amen.